He was young, very rich, and not exactly a stellar student. Yet Jared Kushner got into Harvard nonetheless. How exactly did he do it? With more than a little help from Daddy. More, in fact, than most of us ever knew. As recounted in Kushner, Inc., a new book by HuffPost editor-at-large Vicki Ward, Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's wealthy real estate developer father, pledged $2.5 million to Harvard. More than that, he called up then-New Jersey Senator Frank Lautenberg, to whose campaigns Kushner's companies had donated more than $200,000, and recruited him to lend a hand. Loudenberg then got his colleague, Senator Ted Kennedy, to call up Harvard's Dean of Admissions. When Jared got his acceptance, his teachers and fellow students at his Tony Private School were dumbstruck. One of them broke down in tears. Kushner had been a track three student, and acceptance at Harvard was unheard of for someone with that track record. His GPA did not warrant it, his SAT scores did not warrant it, one school official said. In the wake of the massive college bribery scandal just revealed by federal authorities, Kushner's acceptance at Harvard stands out as a prime example of what wealth and privilege can buy. And living the privileged life has been a hallmark of Kushner's life, from Harvard straight into the White House under the only occasionally watchful eye of his father-in-law, President Trump. We'll discuss Kushner's charmed life and what possible legal exposures he has with Vicki Ward, and as we await Robert Mueller's Russia report, we'll talk with the member of the House of Representatives who has had more experience than anybody with impeachment on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, it is pretty striking after that huge college bribery scandal in which Hollywood actresses are getting arrested and indicted for bribing to get their kids into good schools to read about uh, Jared Kushner and all the strings that his daddy pulled for him to get him into Harvard. I mean, getting Ted Kennedy to call up the Harvard Dean of Admissions to get your track three kid into Harvard. You know, I'm not sure I see a moral difference between what uh, Charles Kushner did for Jared and uh, all those uh, Hollywood actresses uh, who have just been uh, charged with bribing. Yeah. You know, we're all waiting here for the Mueller report to drop and, you know, we're going to be dissecting it and going down all these different avenues of investigation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in a way, what this story and the convergence of the story about how Jared got into Harvard and this admission scandal, yeah. uh, you know, that's going to resonate more with the public in some ways than Mueller. Right. It's this idea that Jared and Ivanka 
are these entitled princelings that, you know, haven't paid their dues, that have these big jobs without any experience. Jared is running Middle East policy. We just saw uh, just today as we were recording, uh, Donald Trump tweeted that the United States is now going to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, changing Israeli-Palestinian policy, you know, that's been in place for decades, just in a tweet. And it's just like this, you know, Ivanka, we're going to talk about this uh, when we talk about this book on, you know, Kushner, Inc., but Ivanka, who, like, Mm. is scheming to get planes that she can fly around in, I mean, just no sense of accountability and it's just like, you know, it's and, outrageous. And speaking of not playing by the rules, uh, you know, we just got this letter in from Elijah Cummings, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, revealing that Kushner's lawyer, Abby Lowell, has confirmed to the committee that Kushner had been using WhatsApp messaging application to, as part of his official White House duties, to communicate with foreign leaders. And um, I'm reading from Cummings letter here, uh, Lowell could not answer whether Kushner's communications included classified information, which would be a major security breach, but instead directed the committee to inquire with the National Security Council and the White House. The letter also talks about how Ivanka had been using private email as well, as well as Steve Bannon when he was in the White House and KT McFarland. I mean, look, you know, what's so, so amazing about that is they just came into office after defeating Hillary Clinton, who'd been under investigation by the FBI for her own private email server. Uh, You'd think if they were going to obey the rules on anything, it would have been about using official government email. Oh, because you you think those were principled attacks on (laughs) Hillary Clinton's lack of integrity as opposed to a you know, political tactic to gain office. I'm it's, shocked. It, you, you can imagine, you can just yeah. imagine Jared, you know, sitting in some White House meeting and yeah. he's got his iPhone and he's uh, WhatsApping, uh, you know, you, Mohammed. Uh, MBS. MBS, yeah, yeah, the yeah, crown prince, you know, they're sending like memes and, and gifts to each other and cracking up. It's, Prin- you know, princeling to prince, right, so, communications. So, when, so right. When the, I guess when the committee asked whether Jared was keeping records mm. of these communications for right. the Official Records Act, uh, the the answer was he screenshots them. <laughs> yes. So I guess that's the that's the that's this generation's efforts to preserve, to preserve official, official government records. records. You take a screenshot of your uh, WhatsApp application. So look, a couple of other things we should flick at before we get to our uh, first guest, Vicky Ward. We are, really are TikTok awaiting uh, the Mueller report any moment. Now I know there's a great deal of cynicism about this because you know what I hear is, oh, I've been hearing Mueller's report is about to drop for the last. You know, six months or so. But it does look like it's real right now. I just saw on Twitter members of the uh, Mueller staff are bringing their families to the office for a sort of official picture taking, uh, indicating, you know, this could be the last day. The networks have been told to be on alert for an announcement that uh, the report has been submitted to the Attorney General, William Barr. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to see the report this week or next week. There will be some period of time that Barr will review it and then determine what he shares with the public. But that's when the battle begins, because as we know, the Democrats in the House will be adamant that they need to see everything. Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, as soon as we learn that the report has been submitted, 
even if we don't know anything that's in it, it is going to be treated as bombshell news. Of course. The cable channels are going to be going crazy. By the way, I should point out, we will be doing an emergency podcast. Uh, <laughs> an to, emergency to, podcast. To, take, to right. take note of A this. A national emergency. That's right. To take right. notice of this momentous uh, event. But, you know, it, it is also the case that we don't know exactly how long it'll take, but we do know that the Attorney General, Bill Barr, will be releasing some kind of a public summary. And so there will be actual news coming shortly at thereafter. Some at point, some point. At some point, but they soon, are saying. But soon. We think soon. Right. Days. Right. And, and look, I think the only thing we may be able to glean when the announcement of the submission of the report comes is whether it's accompanied with any more indictments. And if it is, obviously, that will be huge news. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday. Friday is the uh, is the grand jury day. Grand jury meets, so I, it's possible. I don't think but, that's I, all right. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna just yeah. say this. I don't think that's Bob Mueller's style. I don't think he's gonna end this with a you know a, a flourish like the fin- you know the grand finale of uh, some you know fireworks yeah. show. I, I yeah. just doesn't seem like. Although that's of, what people keep uh, predicting. Uh, you listen to John. John Brennan, on uh, the MSNBC analyst, former CIA director, he keeps tweeting and saying, "Oh, you know, there are going to be these indictments." Look, well, we don't eat, I will know. Eat, I will eat my words. But if look, that if they're not, that in and of itself will be significant, and you know, the president, you know, will immediately claim some sort of vindication. But of course, the, you know, the devil is in the details. What does Mueller say about obstruction? What does he say? If he does, and uh, how, if we see it, how um, much is he willing to say that he doesn't put in indictments? We know he's not going to indict the president, but is mm-hmm. he going to put anything in in the report that suggests criminal behavior? Well, we uh, hope to find out very shortly. One other item we should just touch on is our famed Skullduggery podcast guest from last November, George Conway, has been in the news quite a bit this past week. If anything, escalating his uh, Twitter attacks on the president and, you know, most famously taking a screenshot of the uh, psychiatric manual's uh, description of narcissistic personality disorder. And he also used, he said, everyone will now know what narcissistic personality disorder and malignant narcissism is, which is a phrase I hadn't heard actually until our other recent Skullduggery guest was on the show, uh, Bill Weld, also talking about Donald Trump. It really has escalated into just this unbelievable soap opera. opera. It's a soap opera. And who's in the middle of the soap opera besides the president (laughs) and George Conway, but Mrs. Kellyanne Conway, I guess the president refers to him as as, as Mr. Mr. Kellyanne Conway. And she is in the pretty awkward position of having to defend her boss right. over the accusations of her husband. And uh, so yeah. that, of course, is continuing this parlor game of trying right. to figure out Trump, what in the world is going on inside Trump, this marriage. Trump, Trump called Conway the husband from hell. My thought about that is uh, uh, Donald Trump is probably the marriage counselor from hell. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll see how that all sorts itself out. But uh, we should get on with the show. All right, we are now joined by Vicki Ward, author of Kushner Inc., Greed, Ambition, Corruption. Vicki, welcome to Skullduggery. 
Thank you for having me. And congrats on what is really a great read with so many nuggets, which we want to discuss on this episode. But I just want to start out by something that really caught my eye this morning, which is an op-ed in the Washington Post by Charles Kushner, father of Jared Kushner, defending him from allegations of conflicts of interest and uh, making the point that Jared's service to the country has been, uh, they've bent over backwards to avoid even the appearance of conflicts. And what strikes me about (laughs) this on so many levels is Charles Kushner, the convicted felon father of Jared, who bought his way into Harvard as we, I want to delve yes. into, is now defending his son in the Washington Post. Of all the people to get to defend <laughs> Jared, would you really want to turn to the tainted father? But it's all about family, right? From Charles Kushner, yes. right? Yes. Well, and, and for Jared. I mean, I think one of the great points of the book is that, you know, Jared is to some degree controlled by Charlie Kushner. I mean, Charlie Kushner is behind Jared's rise. So, you know, I read the op-ed and I thought, you know, I hate to use this sort of Trump word, sad. But, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's so many things that are sort of wrong in it. It's more interesting in a way for what it doesn't say than what it does say. You know, to your point, Mike, he sort of starts off and he tells the backstory of the Kushner family and it sounds like, oh, the sort of cookie-cutter story. No mention of the fact that he went to jail for one of the counts that he pled guilty to was something very sordid and scandalous. You know, look, (laughs) on that point, I mean, I know this has been out there for a a long time, but just remind us, because you you, have... Let's go to the sordid... (laughs) You have a great account of it in the book. Tell us why Charles Kushner, Jared's father, went to federal prison. Right, so he pled guilty to three counts, tax fraud, illegal campaign contributions, and the witness tampering. The witness tampering was the really sordid, infamous bit where he set up his brother-in-law in a sting involving a prostitute and filmed it in an effort to try to... At the Red Bull Inn. Yes. I love that. <laughs> it, to, to try and coerce him at a time when the family was bitterly feuding over the way Charles Kushner was using sort of his siblings' money and they had objected to it and a private family squabble caught the attention of Chris Christie, then the U.S. attorney, who lays it in on this in an attempt probably to get to the then New Jersey governor, Jim McGreevy. And as I explain in the book, Christie's team of prosecutors had all sorts of personal information that they claim, you know, that they said they told Charles Kushner they were going to bring up in a public court hearing unless he pled guilty. And, you know, I think Jared was exposed to some of that in his uh, early 20s. And, you know, I think it's important to understand the level of hostility that the Kushners must feel, certainly towards Chris Christie, but also to sort of what the government 
in general. I mean, they viewed this as a private family matter. And, you know, Jared went on record afterwards as saying, oh, my father did nothing did nothing wrong. So just a, a couple of things. This grew out of an investigation into illegal campaign contributions by the Kushner companies, correct? That, that well, was the initial it, it investigation. Actu- it actually grew out of a civil dispute between Charles Kushner and his brother, Murray, that would have been kept private had not an accountant then filed an age discrimination and Mm -hmm. an accountant who was a whistleblower who was giving the records of Charles Kushner from Charles Kushner to his brother Murray. Mm -hmm. It sort of spilt out into the public domain and then caught the eye of prosecutors. And that was why Charles Kushner was so furious with his siblings and did this horrific sting because he blamed them for sort of bringing him down. At that time, he was, you know, he was becoming a mogul in New Jersey. He was, he had created this extraordinary Jewish community in Livingston, a town that had never had a Jewish community. He had had Bibi Netanyahu coming to talk. He was seen as a major player, wooing all the po- all sorts of politicians, mainly Democrats. You know, he was on the ascent. And this was, and in fact, at the time of all this legal problems, he had accepted the job of the chairman of the Port Authority, which would have been... Which is a big deal. A big deal. Yeah. Big, big, big deal. So this was, you know, in fact, he was, he actually commissioned a writer, Rudy Giuliani's biographer, Ken Curzon, (laughs) to write the extraordinary, glorious story of the rise of Charles Kushner. And Ken Curzon wrote the book, except it's never seen the light of day. Because he didn't like it. Because of what then subsequently happened. It didn't, I mean, then Charlie Kushner goes to jail. So I think you have to understand. Not not the ending that he he wanted for this I I just want to be a little more granular. What what Charles Kushner did is he hires a cop to hire (laughs) a hooker who then seduces the brother-in-law and gives him a blowjob that is on videotape, which Charles then has delivered to the wife of the brother-in-law. Who's his, no, who's his, his sister. sister. Who's yes. his sister. Okay. And, and Jared defended all this throughout his life. So Jared has said, yes, my father did nothing wrong. He, you know, he it reduces it to money. It's so interesting. Money. My father, you know, made my siblings very rich. Charlie Kushner was a self-appointed sort of leader of the four Kushner siblings. And he therefore thought he could do with their money whatever he wanted without asking them. And mm. it turned out they didn't like that so much. So to be fair to Jared, first of all, did you um, seek an interview with him for your book? Of course. And did he, it doesn't seem like he gave you one. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Why not? (laughs) Well, you know, I've actually known Jared. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually wanted me to work for him many, many years ago. Ooh, do tell. Let's hear the story. Yeah, yeah. I actually met Jared Kushner when he first moved to New York when he was trying to rehabilitate the Kushner name. You know, I say in the book there was this three-point plan. So after Charlie's sort of ambitions had gone so disastrously wrong, all the pressure was on Jared, the oldest son, to redeem the family name. And Howard Rubenstein, a veteran... The PR guy. The PR guy, has this plan 
the, the first thing is they're going to sell up all their real estate in New Jersey and buy a trophy building in New York. They're going to buy a media outlet so that they can control their image to a certain extent and buy influence. And the third thing is Jared is going to date someone prominent. So I, I meet him through the Rubensteins. I meet him. So wait, was this a setup? <laughs> yeah. You were set I, up I, Jared. Stephen Rubenstein introduced me to Jared Kushner. I had no idea about the plan at the time, but I was... So did you guys date? Uh, no, no, I was working at Vanity Fair. And, um, and I actually thought that Jared was charming. I could s- tell that he knew very little about journalism or media uh-huh. and like he, he he hired ken curzon right the the author of well, that eventually he uh, went okay, through he yeah he doesn't he burns through endless new york observer editors and and the cushioners are charlie Kushner, you know says aloud in the offices of Kushner companies you know when are we going to get an editor who just writes what we want i mean that you know couldn't understand why editors didn't want to take dictation i mean the Kushners think that you know that the only point of media is to is to literally be stenographers. So anyway, I met Jared when he was fresh to New York and he seemed, you know, on a very superficial level to be, you know, I met him before he met Ivanka. I mean, right in the mm-hmm. early days, you know, he, was, he seemed fine. Fast forward, and I also mentioned in the book, uh, he actually even, he reached out to me at one point to see if I wanted to write an article for the New York Observer about a guy called Richard Mack. I'd never heard of Richard Mack at the time, so I just I ignored it. And I didn't think any more about really any of this until 2016, summer of 2016, I was working for Esquire magazine, and I was sitting around with the editor, Jay Field, and his deputy, Michael Haney, and we were thinking, OK, we want to revamp this magazine. Who would appeal to the readers of Esquire magazine? And um, I came up, I said, oh, what about the Kushner brothers? There's Jared in the middle, you know, must be interesting in the middle of this Trump campaign madness. And there's Josh Kushner, the younger brother, who had seemed to be extraordinarily successful in a venture capital business. And they seemed to be perfect sort of cover material. But so then I, I said about reporting. I happened to have my last book before this one was all about the world of real estate. So I am. I know that the world of the, you know, it's a world that's very, very easy for me to report on. I was really surprised to discover very quickly that the Jared Kushner that I had known seemed to have evolved into somebody really quite nasty, very imperious, rude, very rude to people he thought didn't, you know, he'd never have to encounter socially, people who didn't matter. Give us an example of that. Right in the book, I quote that, you know, he says to somebody who runs the leasing, he's in charge of leasing for a project in Brooklyn, I would do this job so much better than you. You know, he said to somebody at WPP, Martin Sorrell, back in the day, the former head of WPP, the you know big advertising company, had been doing sort of social chit chat with Jared. And Jared said, oh, you know, I think you're, you haven't got your real estate worked out properly. And he came and said to Martin, I've got some suggestions for where you should put various of your companies. Well, the head of WPP's real estate had meanwhile actually got some fairly sensible ideas for what WPP and the board approved them. And Jared read in the paper what WPP's real estate strategy was. He was so angry that he asked Martin Sorrell for a meeting. He came into WPP and he said in front of a room of people to the head of real estate at WPP, you know what? 
you should be fired. And, I mean, everyone was just, you know, who is this guy? Who well, does he think he is? Well, it, well, it strikes me that uh, at the heart of this book and these characters, the Kushners and Ivanka as well, is this idea of entitlement. Right. And Kushner, Charles Kushner, the patriarch, has spent his life uh, trying to turn Jared into the the prince. And so I want to bring us forward to something that uh, just happened today as we record this podcast, which is the House Government Oversight Committee released a letter that reveals that uh, Jared Kushner was using his private email, his private uh, his WhatsApp to right. uh, to be in contact with foreign leaders. Um, we don't know all the details yet, but it is a pretty interesting irony given that this president, President Trump, rode to office criticizing Hillary Clinton for right. using. Uh, so to talk a little bit about that kind of characterological piece about entitlement and how that has shaped who he is and how he's behaved and the things that you uncover yeah yeah this, in this book. sort of this disdain for the rules right rules are for other people details are not important i mean you know back you know when he was at kushner companies his colleagues noticed you know he didn't know his numbers and that doesn't matter when you're working for a real estate firm but it really matters in government so like number 1 not taking anyone with him to all these meetings with foreigners in the transition really significantly not disclosing meetings with any of the foreigners he met on his security clearance forms. And, you know, the significance of that was when the media started to report on that. I say in the book, it was Jared who quite uncharacteristically, very publicly made an impassioned plea to the president, please fire James Comey, who then the director of the FBI, who was conducting its investigation into whether or not there was collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. And, you know, Jared did not just merely support President Trump, as was reported at the time. He pushed him and all his colleagues in the White House, most of whom disagreed with the idea that, and, and, that James Comey should be fired. And do you think that's also rooted in what you were talking yeah, about no, before, the experience that he had and that his family had with, with law enforcement? Absolutely. There is a mistrust of... Government. There's a mistrust of government and a feeling that rules, you know, those are for other people. And you see, I mean, look at this, this email, the misuse of the email and of the WhatsApp. I mean, it's like, you know, no, no, what, why, why should we have to do this? And Ivanka was doing the same thing. Yes. She was using a private email uh, and, you know, they're saying that she only recorded it and turned it over to White House for record keeping purposes if she responded, which is not quite what the law is. is the really law is if you receive something about official business, if you receive emails, because one obvious reason you get an email about something about official government business, somebody wants you to do something, you then perhaps make a phone call rather than respond on email. And so none of that is ever captured for official records. There's a reason that people came down so hard on Hillary Clinton for using a private email server. And it is astonishing to see Jared and Ivanka playing by their own rules, doing a version of the same thing. No, I mean, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and I mean, and, and I think that they have thought, certainly until very recently, that they can somehow message their way out of the whole thing. I mean, right. I think that's what's so really frightening about Jared and Ivanka is that they sort of think because they're not as transparent, actually, as Trump, 
they're not tweeting 50 times a day and saying sort of, right. <laughs> you know, irrational, <laughs> extraordinary no. things. But they, they're sort of in disguise. Interestingly, the person who really hates this misuse of the emails and hate is going to absolutely be beside himself right now is the president. It was precisely when this story first was reported that, that they had misused their emails. That was, that was one of the times that Donald Trump said, could they just go? Well, yeah, I was going to say, that's an extraordinary thing yeah. in your book. Get that, rid of my yeah. that, kids. That, you that the president goes to his chief of staff yeah. and says, let's find a way to get yeah. rid of said, get rid of my kids. My kids. Yeah, well, yeah. it comes in, I say in the book, it comes in waves, but the emails, the first time that this issue was raised, drove him nuts. It's quite interesting. And he, well, says, he says to Kelly, get rid of them, make life so unpleasant that they come, you know, they, they want to go. But of course, the great irony is that Kelly does exactly what he's told. Yeah. And well, then and then Trump Trump's great and this you know this, his supporters the Republicans people like Mark Corallo who for a while was the spokesperson for the legal team really feel you know they sort of he wants to actually Corallo wants to be loyal to Trump but he feels that, that his great Achilles heel are these two that the president the great vulnerability the president makes all these mistakes like overriding all security experts to give them yeah. their security clearance. Well, one yeah. of the things that's so interesting and actually juicy in your book is the extent to which Jivanka, as they're called, <laughs> um, inspired animosity in the White House. And you have this extraordinary scene where an altercation between Ivanka and Steve Bannon breaks out right in front of the president uh, about a story that had been leaked about withdrawing troops from... Yes. Why, why don't you read the from, exchange yeah, me, I'm gonna, I'll read before... This. Yeah. I'm going to read this. Okay. Uh, so it, it says... Yeah. Uh, so it's about who leaked this, the yeah. story about Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, my Iva- So Ivanka says, no, you're the leaker. And Bannon says, you're the biggest leaker in this place. You leak all the time, Ivanka. I don't know anybody in the press. I wouldn't even know who to call. Bannon... Everybody knows you leak. You and Jared spend all day long leaking on people. Ivanka. And by the way, once again, this is in front of the president of the United States. You're a fucking liar. Everything that comes out of your mouth is a fucking liar. Bannon, go fuck yourself. You are nothing. (laughs) Trump reading the offending news article. Hey, baby, I think Steve's right on this one. I think they leaked to make me look bad. So he takes Bannon's side. That's an amazing story. How, right. How did, you, how did you get that story? How did I get that yeah. story? <laughs> Someone in the room? Yeah. Someone in the room. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, but very. I mean, one thing I was careful. If to only do, we had tape, Oval Office yeah. tapes right now. I'd, I'd, I'd pay for that one. Yeah. Someone in the room, and then obviously, what's difficult about a story like that is that there were three people in the room, right? So, how do you second source <laughs> it? So that particular scene was, you know, I needed to find someone who knew about it. To double source. So but, someone yeah. in the room, and no, then no, someone, yes, no, no, someone, then, yeah, yeah, and then someone who'd heard who'd the story, who'd heard the story, exactly, well, yeah. yeah, because otherwise it's like, okay, how do you, yeah. All right, so as we come to the end, what looks like the end of the Mueller investigation, right. um, do you believe that uh, Jared has any legal exposure right now? Well, look, I'm sh- if I'm sure, given what I write about Jared's role in. Um, pushing to fire James Comey. And, you know, I think the other thing I, that's, that's in the book that Mueller will have looked at is the cover, you know, Jared, the strategy by Jared and Jared's lawyer, Abby Lowell, to have Don Jr. take the fall 
for the Trump for Tower the Trump meeting. Tower meeting. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, those are the two specific Russia connected things. Well, there was another one during the transition when he has the meeting with Kislyak Uh, and he proposes the separate channel uh, be set up for communications at the Russian embassy. Yes. Right. No, no, no. Well, and and there's a fourth. I mean, there's the Cambridge Analytics. I mean, you know, there there are many. But I think that from what I've what I say in the book, what I've understood for the lawyers who were involved in representing Trump, Mueller is going to be quite narrow in his focus. I think there are, and what he's and he has had to meet, as we've seen, with many all sorts of nationalities in his investigation. I mean, he's you know George Nader. There, you know, been people from the Middle East. I mean, this thing has become yeah. no wonder it's taken so long. It's it's enormous, right, in its scope. But his findings have to be narrow. Right. So the question is, what's he done with all the the leads that he's had? And right. and I think from my reporting, the book sort of shows the threads in there that the leads that suggest that the Kushner's conflicts of interest may have led to self-interest when conducting foreign policy and things like that, those will have gone to other prosecutors, you know, Southern District of New York and Congress. Right. Look, for what it's worth, I'm not sure that Mueller is going to go after him. In fact, I I suspect not based on everything we know at this point. But certainly Congress will. There's so many aspects of this that don't necessarily fall within the, you know, criminal context, but are still highly relevant in terms of basic good governance. We haven't even talked about the relationship with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, in which, you know, they... Two of them seem to have become, uh, you know, best buddies, and basically um, Jared played a big role, it looks like, in tilting U.S. policy towards the Saudis even after, even after we had evidence of MBS's direct role in the uh, murder of the Saudi journalist. And you, you, right. you report that Tillerson, Secretary of State Tillerson, basically thought that Jared was a threat to national security. Yes, he did. I mean, he went from being annoying because he cut Tillerson out of, you know, all, all the conversations, the WhatsApp conversations with MBS. And then days, days after this summit that was, you know, it's amazing that the first official visit was to Saudi Arabia. I mean, not a country of democratic values. You think? And no. And this theme of cooperation in the Gulf. And then the Saudis turn around and blockade. And he pushed for the blockade, didn't he? Well, he, well Tillerson Qatar. and Mattis had no idea. Yeah. And they knew that MBS would never have done it without a green light. Yeah. And Tillerson knew the green light must have been Jared. And of course, then, then Jared just worked slowly behind the scenes to push Tillerson out. And as we know, Mattis subsequently left. I mean, it's you say it's not good governance to me it's much more frightening than that i mean i and i also think that you know one of the things congress is now investigating is how 666 fifth avenue the trophy building of the kushners was bailed out and i think that the questions around that are really really troubling i mean if america is now conducting foreign policy so that basically whoever pays the people in the white house are the people where we swing towards you know, we just follow the money. What does that say about this? Great well, that's yeah. ultimately <laughs> that that is the scandal selling yeah. selling yeah. our foreign policy yeah. to the highest bidder. Last question: You report in your book that Ivanka has talked about running for president. Ugh, yeah. 
is who, who is telling her that that's a good idea? I think she's telling herself, isn't she? I mean, she looks in the mirror. Well, there you go. Well, listen, it's a great read. Lots of nuggets, lots to discuss. Vicki Ward, thanks for joining us, and congrats again on the book. Thank you for having me. We now have on the line with us Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren from her kitchen in San Jose, California. Congresswoman, welcome to Skullduggery. How are you? Um, very well, very well. So listen, everybody in Washington is on pins and needles waiting for the Mueller report, uh, which we think uh, is going to drop any day. What have you heard? Well, I've heard a lot of people speculating who actually have no idea what's going to happen. And so my tendency in such cases is just to wait and uh, see what happens. As we will all be uh, reading it quite eagerly, what have you been told about what you will immediately be able to see? We do not know. As you know, we had a unanimous vote to open the entire report, make the whole thing available. We have not received a word what is going to happen, what the Attorney General intends to do. I do think that the House's vote and the President just said, you know, let the whole thing out. There is tremendous pressure, but also every reason for the Attorney General to release not just the report, but the documents that support whatever conclusions the report reaches. So, Congresswoman, you, you won't be satisfied with a summary of the report. That's the expectation, is that that's what the public will see, just a kind of a top-line summary as opposed to the whole report with the supporting documents. But that won't satisfy I, I you. I think that's disrespectful to the public. And even the president said, no, let, let people read it. People want to know what happened. And I think people have a right to know what happened. It's their presidency. But if the administration and the attorney general, Bill Barr, holds firm to that position and doesn't release the whole report, will the committee subpoena the report? Will will it subpoena Bob Mueller himself and, and ask him to come and testify before the committee? I try and be very cautious not to speak for the Judiciary Committee based on the conversations all of us have had together until the committee itself is prepared to make an official statement. I'll just say this. I think it's been made obvious that we do not intend to just take that as the end of the game. So Speaker Pelosi uh, made a lot of news last week when she said that she basically seemed to take impeachment off the table. Her most memorable words were, he's not worth it. Absent really compelling, convincing evidence of impeachable offenses. We wanted to have you on this uh, on this show because you've had more experience with impeachment than any other member of the House. And we wanted- God, yes. <laughs> both the Nixon impeachment and the Clinton impeachment. Right. And I want to talk to you about both of those. But do you agree with the Speaker that he's not worth it? Well, I don't know what she meant by that, but I do think that her statement that you don't proceed absent, you know, some, you know, extremely serious matters is, in fact, what the standard ought to be. Impeaching is undoing an election. And, you know, I didn't enjoy the outcome of that election, but you don't do that unless there is a necessity, an overwhelming requirement to step in because of the behavior has threatened the uh, 
vitality of the constitutional order itself. So, look, I mean, we don't know what Robert Mueller is ultimately going to find in terms of commission of crimes, but we do know a lot about what President Trump has done in office. We know about his efforts to interfere with the Mueller investigation. We've learned more. The committee has learned more about his efforts to uh, potentially impede the Southern District investigation. From what you know now that is already public in terms of the president's conduct, does it rise to the level of impeachable offenses in your view? I think we need to find out more information. You know, when, I mean, we can talk about this later, but my goal standard is the Nixon impeachment. The impeachment of Clinton was really a political exercise that was not grounded in the requirements um, for an impeachment. And if you think back to what happened, uh, there was substantial evidence uh, that not only Nixon uh, interfered and tried to get the CIA to stop the FBI from interfering, but he was well aware of the crimes that had occurred. Uh, We never proved whether he had pre-approved them or not, but certainly knew immediately as they occurred. So, you know, in addition to the IRS uh, matters where he tried to use the IRS to uh, intimidate those who were his critics and the like. We have, I mean, I think we're in the, in the neighborhood, but we don't know what the president knew about the investigation. It does matter whether you're trying to prevent uh, investigations to a criminal matter versus something that is merely uh, political, perceived as a political matter. So I think we need more information. Committing a criminal offense is not the basis for impeachment. I mean, I think the argument was made, and I think it was correct, that uh, Bill Clinton did lie under oath about sex. That's a crime. But it doesn't have a lot to do with upturning the constitutional order of the United States of America. But if you interfere with a, an FBI investigation where the underlying thing that's being investigated is you know, collusion with a foreign government, a foreign rival, and, and I think this is what you're saying we don't necessarily know yet, but if you could show corrupt intent, which is a requirement right. uh, for at that point, would we be uh, sort of squarely in impeachment territory? I, mean, well, if they asked, I think yeah. it's important. As I said, I think we're in the neighborhood but there's more information required. Right. Let me ask you just uh, quickly, because you mentioned you're talking about Nixon and, you know, using government agencies or abusing them. And that really was about abuse of power. And there is another kind of line of potential investigative inquiry. You know, I'm not sure if the House Judiciary Committee has or is planning on taking this up, but Jane Mayer wrote a piece in The New Yorker recently in which she says that Trump directed and pressured uh, Gary Cohn, top White House official, to pressure the FBI to block the AT&T Time Warner deal. And the reason people have speculated is because of his animosity towards CNN, which uh, was part part of uh, Time Warner. I haven't read the piece. I read the newspaper article about the piece. And again, that's if true, that would be a very serious matter. If you take a look at the Nixon impeachment, it was an accumulation of things that occurred in addition to an unwillingness 
to actually respond to the Judiciary Committee's inquiry itself, which in the end was did not get the bipartisan support as an article that the others did, although later when the smoking gun tapes came out, the Republicans who hadn't supported it opined publicly they wished that they had. So it's not worth speculating at this point because we're going to find out more information than we have now. And we've got to have that information in order to decide whether we have an obligation to proceed or not. But is the committee looking into this this allegation? Because I think I did see that added to uh, whatever it was, 81 uh, individuals mm-hmm. and entities for which documents have been requested, that Gary Cohn's been added to that. Is it to look into this very allegation? Well, let me just say that I'm not going to speak for the committee on what we're looking at. I don't think that's, you know, that's something that should come officially from the committee. But that was the first round of requests for documents. There are additional documents that will be requested. People can make assumptions based on who's being asked for what documents. You know, I'm just not going to make an official statement. I was going to ask one other uh, avenue that we do know, and the committee has been public about, the chairman uh, has been public about that you're pursuing, is Matthew Whitaker's testimony. Now, you brought him back for an informal interview last week about the question as to whether the president called him and pressured him to do something about the Southern District investigation into campaign finance violations. Right. Well, that may not have been uh, truthful. Other than on that? Yes. I mean, the question I asked, mm-hmm. as soon as I asked it and he answered, the lawyers on the committee staff behind me said, that was perjury. And I said, well, I don't know if it was or not. So we'll see. But you can't come to the committee under oath and then give statements that are knowingly false. So uh, I think that's what we're attempting. To and what was the question that was suggested? Oh, I don't want to. It's but- within the weeds. It's not worth it. But then does the committee then make a referral, criminal referral, to the Southern District for uh, to, to... Well, as you know, the, the Congress can't prosecute. <laughs> right. So any finding of that we thought was criminal in nature would have to be sent to prosecutors. We can't uh, prosecute. Well, I guess, but that's my question. Was it sent to prosecutors? Again, I can't, I'm not going to speak for the committee. I think it's important that when we act, we act with one voice and that we proceed in an orderly manner. So it doesn't help that for individual members to be giving proclamations. All right, let's take a step back away from Mueller for the moment. I mean, the committee is pursuing this continuing broad investigation into all aspects of the Trump administration and the president's past business ties. You sent out these, uh, you know, requests for information from to 81 individuals and entities. You've already getting thousands of pages uh, back as a political matter. Are you at all concerned that if Mueller wraps up, as we expect him to in the next week or so, and doesn't bring any additional indictments against either members of the president's family or other members of the Trump White House for colluding, criminally conspiring with the Russians during the 2016 election, and the committee goes forward with this broad investigation that Politically, the committee is running a risk here that it will be perceived as hounding a president who'd just been investigated by a special counsel for more than two years, and yet you're not accepting the findings. Well, obviously, we need to proceed in an 
orderly fashion. But the role of the Judiciary Committee is quite different than the role of the special uh, counsel or prosecutor. We are uh, engaging in oversight of the administration broadly, and uh, they are looking for evidence of misconduct, wrongdoing, criminal activity. So we want to make sure that the laws are being faithfully executed. That is a different standard than commission of a crime, and that is our job as an oversight body. I don't think that, given what the Republicans did, how many times did they investigate Benghazi after (laughs) everyone said none of it had happened? But is is that your standard, uh, Benghazi? (laughs) I think, you know, an orderly uh, exercise of our oversight jurisdiction is unlikely to meet the standard that they set. Look, if you're investigating everything, which is sort of the way those 81 letters read, you know, they were across the map, including a lot of stuff that has been under investigation by the special counsel. If you're investigating everything, you're really investigating nothing. You know, the the question is, can you... I think Jerry has mentioned this. Everything we asked for has already been produced to someone else. So... The documents that were asked for were, have, have been sent to someone else and is, and is readily available. So it's just a decision of whether or not the person who's received a request is willing to give to us what they've given to other entities. If you had to prioritize right now to two or three items that you think should be at the top of the investigative agenda for the committee, what would they be? Oh, that's tough. You know, I have... <laughs> you're talking about the president and his misconduct, I want to do oversight over what's happening to the asylum seekers uh, at the border and what's happening to the children who have been disappeared and the pathetic uh, non-efforts of the administration to find them. I think we do need to take a look at what is happening or not happening in the antitrust division, and that includes the allegation made in the New Yorker, but not just that. I think, you know, there are a whole variety of issues in the criminal justice arena that need review. So we need to take a look at our privacy policies in the tech world, but also in the non-tech world. There's a lot of things we need to look at. Does the Judiciary Committee, I mean, you just named some, you know, very important issues, I guess two out of three that have nothing to do with uh, any of these criminal investigations into the Trump administration or, the, you know, the Mueller investigation. Does the committee have the bandwidth to do all of this or... Is it potentially a problem that there's so many investigative kind of avenues related to the Trump administration's corruption that could be a distraction? Well, I mean, obviously, there's only so many hours in the day, but we do have subcommittees that are... We had almost an all-day hearing on the missing children, and we are going to have to have a need for more inquiry there, whether it will be at the full committee or the subcommittee I chair, I don't yet know. We have a subcommittee on antitrust as well as the full committee. So, you know, we've got a lot of um, willing members who are eager to make the country uh, work well, and, you know, we'll see. But I do think, you know, just in the area where uh, I have special responsibility on immigration, the law-breaking is astonishing, and it's like a fire hose of misconduct and violation of the immigration code committed by the um, administration. It's, it's, uh, you know, we have four lawyers on the committee staff 
they have you know tens of thousands of employees so it isn't a fair fight but we will do our best to do oversight I had, had mentioned at the outset that you'd had more experience with impeachment than uh, than anybody else in the house and uh, that was one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this show so I just wanted to take you back to your days as a young house staffer during the Nixon impeachment as I understand it you actually helped draft one of the articles of impeachment against uh, Richard Nixon about the I secret did. bombing of Cambodia. I did, actually. If you, you know, it, it's interesting thinking back to July of 74. By the time it went on TV, it looked very well organized, but we were scrambling because the articles had not been drafted and the coalitions on the committee on the Democratic side as well as the Republican side were very fluid and and uh, one of the articles that was not going to go anywhere, but that M- Mr. Conyers wanted to offer anyhow. John Conyers. Know, I, I ended yeah, up drafting. Yeah. I was a law student. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> even, you know, a lawyer then. But uh, since it wasn't going to pass, I guess they figured it didn't matter if a law student <laughs> drafted it. So that's what I did. So it didn't even pass the committee. It was it was proposed no, by no. Conyers. And, and, and yeah. I think when Conyers, I think Rodino tried to talk Conyers out of offering it, but uh, Conyers felt strongly about it, and he had a right to offer it, which he did. And it, I think it got 12 votes or something and like the, that. And the idea was that Nixon, by bombing Cambodia in secret, had bypassed Congress, uh, didn't get congressional right. approval for it. That was the uh, impeachable offense that was in, in that. Right. And article. I think, you know, yeah. you can make an argument that war needs to be, this is before the War Powers Act, that you have to go to Congress to declare war and that, uh, you know, he in, really attacked another country without telling Congress, without the appropriations, without the authorization. I think the better view is that Congress actually was an accomplice in what happened. And uh, therefore, if you want to say, did this undercut the constitutional scheme, which is the issue wasn't whether or not bombing Cambodia was a good idea, but whether the action in doing that had really undercut the constitutional order, I think an, an argument can be made that the Congress was complicit in this because they had funded the entire endeavor and had oversight over it. But in any case, it it did not persuade the committee and the obstruction issues and the others did. But by, the, I guess, the modern-day analogy in Trump would be... Wait, doesn't it? Well, the, I'm, I'm thinking of the National Emergency Declaration, which doesn't have congressional buy-in at all. You can't make that argument. Is that on its face, by the same logic that you wrote the, the uh, secret Cambodia article, is there a potential article of impeachment in that? Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, we do have tools at our disposal, speaking within the constitutional order, we crafted in 1976 the statute that he is, in my judgment, misusing. We have the capacity, theoretically, to amend that, but we also have ultimately the power of the purse, uh, which we will be exercising in our appropriations bills this June to prevent misuse of that statute. So I, I think, much as I think, his misuse of that statute is appallingly wrong. 
I don't think it is an article of impeachment. And I also think that the third branch is going to step in and sort that out uh, as well. Well, Congresswoman, we uh, thank you for taking the time, and we will be watching very closely once that uh, Mueller report lands, how you and rest of the members oh, well, of the we'll committee respond. <laughs> and uh, get from my staff, I recently somebody sent me a picture of the young me holding a stack of papers in the Judiciary Committee room with Alan A. Parker, then one of the committee counsel, during the impeachment inquiry, the day before the impeachment hearing. All right, that's All right. great. We'll and we, that. uh, and we thank you for your historical perspective on this <laughs> important subject. Thanks okay. a lot, Congresswoman. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Vicki Ward and Zoe Lofgren for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekends. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. And now you can watch the podcasts on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.